Father in heaven, I thank you for the Sabbath, for the beauty of your holy Bible. And I ask as we look at your word this evening that you would help us to understand it. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to speak to you tonight about a, <clears throat> a problem and then a gift and a solution. Uh, the problem, which has been developing for several years, is related to how wise humans are. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 17. First Corinthians 1, verse 17. For Christ, that is the Messiah, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I want you to think about the verse for a minute, just an idea that's in there. Paul was sent to preach, and he wasn't sent to baptize. That part is relevant to Adventist missions everywhere. Not that baptism wasn't important, but he was sent to preach the gospel. But then he said something about how he was to preach. And he didn't say so much what he was to do in verse 17, but what he was avoiding. And what was he avoiding? He was avoiding what he calls the wisdom of the wisdom of words. Now, I don't think for a minute that Paul meant that he valued improper grammar or foolish speaking or something like that. But do you see why he wanted to avoid the wisdom of words? Does he show there in verse 17 why? It would neutralize the power of the cross. There's something about the cross, maybe different than chemistry or physics, that when you use educated or in some sense wise words to describe it or to speak about it, that it loses its power or its ability to do what God intended for it to do. Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now think about verse 18 for a minute, because it doesn't say it's foolish to everyone. But the cross, when you preach it properly, will be foolish to a class. And what class is it that sees it as foolish? Isn't it the lost? The lost don't see wisdom in the cross. So if you follow that idea, if you develop it in reference to Adventist mission... Would it be sensible for me to try to change my preaching of the cross to the point where it made sense to the class called the lost? I don't know. I, I think I might confuse you by that question, but let me say this another way. It doesn't surprise me that the followers of the Quran can't see wisdom in the cross. It doesn't surprise me 
that Buddhists don't see anything just or fair about a savior dying for someone else. It doesn't surprise me that even here in America, a number of physicians that I know can't see any sense in the idea that one person could sin and someone else could suffer and that could be called justice. The cross is foolishness to a certain class. And what class is that in verse 18? The lost. I hope that you and I will never be chagrined or troubled by the fact that the lost mock the cross and the ideas of justice and atonement that are in that message. Verse 19, oh, I didn't finish verse 18. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Who is it in verse 19 that brings to nothing the understanding of the prudent? God is I in verse 19. God has a plan or a message or a means of destroying the wisdom and the prudence of that class of wise people, which must be the same class in verse 18 that are called the lost. The wise of verse 19 are the lost of verse 18, those who might be impressed by the wise words in verse 17. I don't know if you can follow that idea. Let me say it to you just one more time. But there are wise words that would impress wise people. But those wise people that would be impressed by those wise words are the lost. And that same class of people do not see wisdom in the cross. In verse 19, I see that God does not intend that the wisdom of man will get honor among the spiritual believers in the Bible. Maybe this is too theoretical for you, and I need to help you know where I'm coming from or where I'm going. Uh, some deeply respected persons, by, respected by me, that I know well, have written me in the last week troubling messages about what I call substitutionary atonement. When I use that phrase, what I mean, I don't, I think it would be just counter my main message tonight if I used words that couldn't be understood. But I mean by that, the idea that Jesus could take the sins of those, his created beings, on him, he could die for those sins, and that we could have access to his righteousness that we had nothing to do with. We did not live it. And he could carry our sins that he had nothing to do with. He did not choose them. I mean, he did not choose to do them. The idea that his righteousness could be substituted for my sinfulness and 
he could carry sinfulness, that idea of substitution is what doesn't make sense to an entire class of people. And I see it growing. I'll say some names right now, but they're not the men I'm, I mentioned that I deeply respect because I don't want to mention their names until I've had a fair chance to do what I can to change things. But the name Timothy Jennings, a physician or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I always forget which, out of Tennessee. Herb Montgomery, a man who was my student when he was 17 years old. Our doctor and Dr. Cole, Drs. Cole, and Graham Maxwell are all persons who have been promoting some of these same ideas. If you go back far enough in church history, you will find an interesting character by the name of uh, Peter Abelard. You don't need to know him, and if you don't remember his name, I don't care that you write it down, but if you want to, you'll find an interesting article about him, I'm sure, on Wikipedia. I haven't read it. Uh, Peter Abelard was one of those men who you, you might say was the forerunner of the Renaissance. He was a man who began to ask questions that no one else had the guts to ask. So if an authority said the world is flat, he wouldn't just take it. He would ask, why do you think so? What is your evidence? Let's see it. And then he would have the audacity to pick that apart. If he saw holes in the logic, if there was a flaw in your reasoning, that was Peter Abelard. Uh, he really questioned things that had been held for a long time. But what he did with human reasoning, he carried to an unsettling extreme. He did the same thing with the word of God. There is a difference between the word of God and the word of man. Uh, yea, let God be true and every man a liar, it says in the Bible. Peter Abelard invented what has come to be known as the moral influence theory. In short, it says that Jesus died for the purpose of showing us God's love. If that was the whole theory, I would say amen, because isn't that the truth? Romans 5 says very plainly that God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It, it's true that some men would even dare to die for a good man, but Jesus went far beyond that, he gave his life for us while we were still his enemies. It is true that the cross shows us the love of God. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. If you have a ribbon or something to leave here in 1 Corinthians 1, that would be good if you did so. But 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. 
For even to this place we were called, because Christ also suffered for, what does it say? For us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Is it true that Jesus died for the purpose of moral influence? Indeed, it is true that he died to exert a moral influence. He died to show us God's love. He died to be an example for us. Look at verse 24. Who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. So Jesus' death on the cross, there was an intention there that would lead us to live a good life. Maybe it's on the same page for you like it is for me. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, 1. For as much then as, God, as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So Jesus' death on the cross was so I could arm myself with what? The same mindset that he had when he went to the cross. That is, whatever way Jesus was thinking when he went to Calvary, that kind of mindset is like an armory. It's like for the warfare with, with evil, that is just what I need. I should arm myself with that very mind. What I'm trying to show you in a few verses is that Peter was right in what he affirmed. He was right when he affirmed that the cross is a moral influence that even the devil can't reckon with. It really moves us. But that isn't all the cross is about. Between 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 4, you find 1 Peter 3. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. First of all, that is substitution, as plain and simple as it gets. The just suffered for the unjust. I don't see any light in this metaphysical idea, almost... I don't want to call it spiritualistic. That's the wrong word. But I'm about to deny an idea that I think even those who affirm it don't understand what they're talking about. I, I mean, not only are they wrong, but they don't even understand what they're trying to say. But the idea that we were in Jesus in some sense on the cross so that when he died we died so that we all really died for our own sin. The idea that we died there ourselves, so that it's just because since I sinned, I need to, die. if you've never heard that, don't let me be the first one to try to convince you that it's so. It just isn't so. It's not true. It is true that Jesus bore my sins.
That was substitution. It isn't so that the unjust died for the unjust. What's so is that the just died for the unjust. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. I am aware that the next few verses are some hard ones, and I don't want to distract us with them, so you can ask about that some other time. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. One of those emails I had, I think it was yesterday I received it. I think it was yesterday. From a man who has been a, uh, a college president. He didn't write to me. He wrote to someone who sent it to me, but it was about me. And he asked about me, does... Eugene believe that Jesus had to pacify is not the word he used, appease. That Jesus had to appease the Father by the sacrifice. That the Father was angry and needed to be appeased. Well, no, I don't believe that. But what he means by that question, what many people mean when they ask the question about appeasement, what they're really doing is they're talking about the idea of justice. Why is it that someone has to die for sin? That's a fair question. Why does someone have to die for sin? And if you ask the question, why do you have to die for sin? Who was it that demanded the death of Jesus? Was it the Father that required it? Was it the law that required it? And I'm not suggesting to you yet any answers to that question, but people who begin to talk about justice and reason it out this way, I think they're moving exactly in the direction that Paul was referring to when he talked about the wisdom of words. Do you remember what he said about the wisdom of words? He wanted to preach the cross of Christ, but not with wisdom of words, because that would make the cross of no effect. The cross is foolishness to those that are lost, but to those that are saved, it is the power of God. Are you in Isaiah 53? Yes. Isaiah 53 in verse 4. Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs. Born there has an E on it. It means carried. He has carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Listen carefully. The chastisement of our peace. That two-word two phrase, our peace, 
is the idea of substitution. That is, Jesus suffered so we could have peace. The chastisement that allowed us to have peace was on him. He carried our sins so we could have peace. Verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did the Father put the sins of everyone on Jesus? According to the Bible, yes. According to the Bible, the just suffered for the unjust. Now, is this fair? Is this righteous that someone could die in place of me? I want to share with you ideas that occur to me when I think about this that might be of value to you. I didn't create myself. Since God created me, I owe him my life. It's obvious to me that I owe him my life because I didn't create my life. My, my life came from him. The fact that he created me makes me entirely obliged to him for my existence. If I served him from the moment I was created for a billion years, what I would do for him is my duty. I cannot do for the Father or for Jesus more than my duty because what I owe him is my entire life. Since I owe him my life, all I can do is my duty. Jesus even said this in Luke 17, 10. He said, so likewise you, when you have done everything that you have been commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. I have only done my duty. We have only done that which was commanded us to do, is what it says there in the verse. But what about Jesus? Jesus isn't created. For that reason, Jesus doesn't owe the Father his life. Jesus doesn't have any obligation to the Father. When Jesus serves the Father... Since he doesn't owe the Father anything, that is volunteer service. If I could make this as rough as it, and simple as I can, when you work for me, I owe you wages. The reason I owe you wages when you work for me is I don't own you. You don't owe me anything. And if you don't owe me anything and then you, you do my service, I ought to give you fair recompense. Do you know the Father owes Jesus? And he is ready and able to pay. When Jesus did the right thing, Jesus was earning wages, and those are what we call his righteousness. His righteousness is the only righteousness in the whole universe that has merit, because it's the only righteousness that is volunteer. Every other righteousness is obliged. 
Is there anyone who understands what I'm trying to say to you right now? His righteousness is the only righteousness that deserves a reward. When the Father gives me a reward in heaven, it's not because I deserve one. It's because I've been credited with Jesus's righteousness to cover my whole life so that I'm treated as if I don't owe the Father anything, and then whatever I do is treated as if I deserve a reward. That's amazing. The fact that we get rewarded for doing right is only because someone else has earned an entire life to replace ours. There's something more about this. And this part, I'm nervous to try to illustrate because I'm not as sure as the day that it's true. So please use your critical thinking and study and write me if you find otherwise. But I think it is so. I don't have any children. I have hundreds and hundreds of children, but I don't have any. And if I did have a 18-year-old daughter, something that would be almost as scary to me as her beginning a courtship would be her driving a car. <laughs> because I've been teaching for you know, 25 years about, I guess it's 23 years formally, and I have known a number of students who've died in cars. Cars are more dangerous for young people than a lot of other things. I don't know anything, not rock climbing, not flying airplanes, I don't know anything as dangerous as driving cars for young people. I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't let your young people drive cars. I think if you don't let young people drive cars, it'll be dangerous for them when they're old. But it's that getting started with driving cars that is dangerous, right? When I give my daughter all the training that I can, give her guidance and advice, teach her what to do if her wheels go off the side of the road, namely nothing, just go straight, right? You know, so you don't overcorrect and... When I give her all the advice that I can, and then I give her the key, she's the one who is responsible for the decisions that she makes on the road. She decides whether to stop at stop signs, whether to go 80 miles an hour in a 55. She decides whether to drink and drive. She has moral responsibility. The state, when they gave her the license, they said that she has responsibility. If it's a license, not a permit, I know they're not going to come after me. If she does something wrong, who are they going after? You know, she's responsible for the things that she does. But if she wrecks that car, I, as a parent, have something to think through. It's her fault. It was her decision. It was her heedlessness. It was her mistake. And she is responsible. But also, I knew that she was not the most reliable, experienced driver when I gave her the keys. 
I don't have any obligation to take responsibility, but I could, as a volunteer, take responsibility for letting her drive. I mean, as a parent, I'm the one who let her drive my car. It wasn't her car, it was my car. And who let her drive it? I let her drive it. And when I let her drive it and she wrecks it, even though her mistakes were not my fault, I could justly take some responsibility for that situation. That ragged illustration is how I'm trying to introduce an idea that Jesus, the Father, they knew what was going to happen when they created intelligent beings. They knew that there was going to be a fall. They knew that Eve was going to take the fruit. They knew that Adam was going to take it too. They knew that your parents weren't going to raise you right. And they knew that you were going to neglect many opportunities to live better than you have. They knew all of it before they created intelligent beings. Jesus was the agent in creation. The Bible is very clear that the Father created through Jesus so that I can see that there is only one being in all the universe that could justly take responsibility for decisions in which he had no part. And that is the creator. And has he done it? He has. Is it his fault? It isn't. But out of kindness and generosity, he's taken responsibility if I'm willing to let him carry it for a mistake that he didn't make. I say it wasn't a mistake because I've thought through the idea of eternity. Eternity helps me with lots of things spiritual. It really keeps me from being overly perplexed when I can't understand things. That is, I don't figure like this, that if I can't understand it, it must not be rational. Because, for example, when I try to think of eternity backwards, even if I try to think of it as an atheist or as a Christian, either way, I can't get it. Can anyone relate to what I'm talking about? I, my mind does not process well eternity backwards. And if it's obvious to me there must be an eternity backwards, I mean, it's obvious as anything, that, that, but I can't, it just doesn't, there's nothing I can work around my head to, to try to picture eternity ago either from either side of the fence, the side I really am on, that, that the father and son were there, or from Dawkins' side, there's nothing there, but, or there is something, where did it come from? There's no, there's no way that I can make sense out of that. So, and it's obvious it's real. It's obvious something is real about eternity back. So when I come to something else that I don't understand, I'm okay with it. I can really see there's limits to my head. Can anyone follow, you, follow what I'm trying to tell you right now? 
I think there could be real limits to my ability to understand the idea of justice. And let me work you through a little bit of an idea. No, let's go back to the Bible first, because if I don't finish the Bible data, I won't feel bad about leaving this off. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, I realize that I heard pages turning the entire time I read that verse, and it's very short, so let's read it again. For he has made him to be sin for us. That is, the Father made Jesus to be sin for us in this church who did no sin. Is that us who did no sin? That's Jesus who did no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is, in relation to him. That is just plain and simple substitution. Substitution is in the Bible, and the cross is all about substitution. When Paul was preaching the cross, he wasn't preaching about the shape of the sticks. He was preaching about substitution. He was preaching about Jesus taking our sins. And what he said about substitution is that to those who are saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. I want to show you a little bit more tonight about how it's the wisdom of God. But whilst the wisdom and power of God to those that are saved, it is foolishness to the class who are lost. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Do you see in verse 14 both the idea of Peter Abelard and the idea of substitutionary atonement. They're both there. He gave himself for my sin. That was for one thing, to redeem me from all iniquity. But that wasn't all. What else was it for? It was to purify to himself a peculiar people. This is the genius, the genius idea of the cross. The ingenious wisdom in the cross is that it solved the whole problem. That is, the cross, the substitution, took away our hopelessness. And at the same time, it made, it made a workable escape. That is, the cross not only made it possible for me to live a pure life, it made it useful to live one. Because if God had found a way to purify my heart, but had not found a way to pay for my sin, it would have helped me not one bit. Right? Yeah. 
because a million years of righteousness will not pay for a sin. I think you understand this. I think everyone in a free country ruled by law understands this almost intuitively because we would never in a court of law say to the policeman that though I did steal the item, I haven't stolen anything in the last three weeks, therefore let me off. Right? We would not think that three weeks of right doing would somehow atone for a misdeed. And we don't have to prove that. We can just see it. But can we just see it in the bigger picture? That a good life can't atone for a misdeed? That if there was no substitution, there would be no hope. And that the reason the angels mourned so sadly when Adam and Eve fell is because to the eyes of the angels, there was no hope. Now, substitution can be explained and shown thoroughly from Scripture. But if you are a Seventh-day Adventist and you're in this room, I would recommend tonight that you look up Patriarchs and Prophets and read the chapter on the story of redemption, especially page 63. What you'll find there is a revelation about the the way the angels related to the fall of Adam and Eve. And they were so sad. But when Jesus explained the plan of salvation, they could not be happy. Because the idea of their beloved commander dying was very not pleasant to them. So, they being very new to this whole idea of substitutionary atonement, they didn't question it. They volunteered to be the substitute. Some of them did. Let me go. Let me die. Very beautiful that some angels would would volunteer that. But it wasn't accepted because it couldn't be. They couldn't pay the penalty. The thought I want you to read tonight is near the end of the largest paragraph on that page. After Jesus met with the Father, it wasn't a short meeting. After they met together, and Jesus came out and explained to the angelic host the plan of redemption... It says something like this, that he bade them accept, accept is not the right word. I wonder if I wrote the notes down of what it says. I didn't. Like he bade them to be satisfied or to be pleased with the plan. In other words, it wouldn't be natural for them to rejoice, but he asked them to do it. He asked them to be joyfully satisfied with the plan. And the next paragraph says, they rejoiced. What he asks of the angels, he asks of us. Not that we're able to really grasp about how it can all work. 
but that we believe that it does work. That we take the word of God as the authority in our life. Do you know that being saved is very simple? It is simply taking God at his word. Living by his word is so simple, people hardly dare accept it. But that's all there is to it. But the reason that salvation is that simple is because of the substitution that happened at the cross. People will be saved by that substitution that don't understand the substitution. You don't have to understand the substitution to be saved. But you do have to take God at his word. And if you do take him at his word, you're going to encounter at some point this beautiful idea that Jesus took his sins in his own, took your sins in his body in your place. And when you accept that by faith, that's when you're declared righteous, when you live by the word of God. I'm ready to close, but I want to take you back to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, where we started. We ended in verse 19. I just want to read a little more and comment. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? The questions in verse 20 are, where are the wise men? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? When you think about verse 20, can you see it in the themes of the book of Daniel? Was it in the wisdom of God to make foolish the wisdom of the world? So do you remember in Daniel 2 and 3 and 6, but especially in Daniel 2 more than any other, also in Daniel 5. But in Daniel 2 and then throughout the book, the wise men come up empty. The wise men can't do it. Is that in the wisdom of God? It's in the wisdom of God even today that the wise men don't get the glory. I sit right now on such an interesting committee. It's the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. It is a collection of just over 100 people. And it seems to me, though I haven't taken a a scientific survey that probably 90 to 95 of those 103 people have PhDs. That's what it seems to me like anyway as I'm just talking to them. I'm not one of those. I'm not close to that. I'm not even marginally approaching that. But as I'm sitting there and talking with these men, what I've realized and women is that it isn't God's plan to exalt the wisdom in such a way that by becoming the honored wise man, you find the light. God would rather show it to a simple-minded person because otherwise he doesn't get the honor. That's the idea in verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
Why foolishness of preaching? Well, don't misunderstand Paul. He's referring back to verse 17. What was he avoiding in his preaching? The wisdom of words that neutralizes the power of the cross. He explains, verse 22, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom and so do the Americans. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I'll develop these thoughts more tomorrow. They'll develop in my head more tonight. But I want to summarize what I've said this evening. The cross is a moral influence of a mighty nature. The wisdom of God is that he can invent a solution that solves more than one problem. And the cross solved more than one problem. It is too wise for me to comprehend all, but I see some things. Not only does it give me such a view of the love of God as to push me forward, but it gives me hope regarding my hopeless, guilty situation. I can't see any light at the end of the tunnel unless there's a substitute that takes my place. And God solved both problems. That's the wisdom of the cross. But there are men today, respected men with high IQs, that do not see any justice in Jesus dying for our sins. I say, who are we to get on the throne? The judge is the one who knows what is a fair sentence. The judge is the one who has the obligation to enforce the law. And as that's not our obligation, we're the victims of sin. Victims make very cruel uh, executors of justice. As we are the victims, God said, avenge not yourself, vengeance is mine. And God, the judge of the earth, does right. And if he says that it's just, if he says that he's not only faithful, but just to forgive us our sins, then who am I to say that it's not just? I think as soon as I say that, I'm showing myself to be the kind of wise man mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1. The kind that says the cross is foolishness, who the verse before we're told he's the one that is lost. And the verse before that says that the wisdom of words has neutralized the power that we recognize in the cross. Let us come down below that wisdom and experience the power of believing what Jesus has done for us. Our Father in heaven, I am sorry that we have been so heedless. That a subject that should have swallowed up many others 
has in fact been swallowed up by so many others. And I ask that you would teach us to see the wisdom in the preaching of the cross that Paul understood. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.